we are going to read today from the gospel, uh, or no, not the gospel, the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 is where we're going. And I just want to remind you, we have been reading from uh, the Revelation, the letters to the seven churches in Asia. We started out, if you remember, in Laodicea, and God had a message to that church, and that message was that they were neither hot nor cold. But they ended up as a lukewarm church. And if you remember back to that, we talked about how that was a place that brought their water in a long way. And as they piped that water in, the lines got clogged. And by the time the water got to them, he used this illustration to show them that the line got filled with junk. And it was neither hot nor cold. And it was actually something that would make you sick. So he warned the church, do not be like that. The church had lost their fire, and he called the church to be a church on fire. We learned that from Laodicea. And then we moved to the church in Ephesus, and we read about this church, a church that was very good with doctrine. They held on to the truth, and they endured, and they were strong, but that church lost their love. That church was a church that did the right thing, but not from a heart of love. And we looked at the message that God had for that church and how that could speak to us. And then we moved just before Christmas and we, uh, we read the letter of the church in Smyrna. And that actually was not a correction letter. It was a letter that was a, a, a difficult truth to receive, but the truth there was that the church would go through times of suffering. We would have struggles, but though we would be tried and tested, we would ultimately be triumphant because God is with his church. So today, we're going to the the fourth one, and that is the church in Pergamum. So as we look at this today, and as we see what God has to say to the church way back then, in the time of, uh, you know, the first century, and what might he have said to them, and what could that say to us? So I ask today that as we get ready to go to the word, and as we look at this fourth church, that your hearts would be open, and as we have been drawn to such a beautiful place of worship before the throne, that we would just be still and quiet and allow God to speak to us here in Oxford, and maybe those who are listening, that we would receive the truth. So if you would open your hearts, I'm going to pray one more time and just ask that we would be an open-hearted church that would receive the truth that God has for us from this letter today. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for how you are moving in this place. Thank you, Father, for the ability to come in freedom and worship. Father, I thank you that we are able to come here with open hearts and fellowship and and receive, God, the the encouragement from each other and, and be able to receive a word from you, Father, and that we would be able to worship together in freedom today. God, I just ask that you, Father, would settle into our hearts and that the word that would come alive and be active in our, in our own lives and our hearts and that it would cause your church to become all, all that you desire her to be. Father, I offer myself to you as an act of worship that you would have complete control. Father, I ask that you would speak through me, that all the truth that you have been bubbling up in the revelation, that you would bring it out clearly, and that the power of your Holy Spirit would take that truth and plant it into each heart and life in a particular and specific way according to the need of each of your children in this place. Father, come and have your way in this place, and may we walk out of this church today 
triumphant, changed, transformed, filled with your Holy Spirit and equipped to be the sons and daughters of the Most High God, living lives that go out and affect the whole world and community around us as we are filled with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to read today Revelation chapter 2, verse 12, if you've turned there. And I'm sorry, is that like banging a lot? It seems like it's making a bad noise. We're good? Okay. Um, Let's read verse 12 down to verse 18. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, and yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. These are some, there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And likewise, you have some among you who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I'm going to stick here. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask you to think for a minute. Have you ever done anything wrong? I'm looking at you over there. You know who you are. I want you to think of that time when you did something wrong and you knew it was wrong, but you weren't sure if anyone else knew it was wrong. Do you remember how that you felt? Lexi and I had a fun chat about this. We were thinking of examples of this. And, you know, I'm not talking about anything super big. I just mean something that you did that you know you probably shouldn't do. And you kind of maybe came out with that cat who ate the canary look. Like, she remembers uh, when she was young, you know, the girls shaved the legs only to the knee. But, you know, when you get in, it was tempting to go all the way to the top. And you come out, you know, she said she know her friend. Like, I wonder if my parents know. But, you know, of course, no one's paying attention, but, you know, they do. And I was thinking, of of course, at camp. You know, Big Lake Camp, maybe one or two of us have probably snuck out in the night and done something we weren't supposed to do. Not Karen, but the rest of us, maybe, <laughs> maybe have done that. And so, you know, did you think of the next day when they brought all the campers into the dining hall and said, okay, someone was out last night playing pranks, and you're the one, the guilty party, sitting there. You know that feeling? Everybody can relate to this feeling. Like, I know it was me, and you probably know it's me, but I don't want to admit it, Hope that I don't get caught? Well, I love how this starts. If you look at these first few words, I mean, we know that God is our good father, but there's a great lesson in parenting here in this first little bit. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So I want to tell you that if that was in our language today, that would be, okay, I'm about to lay something down. And let me remind you before we talk about it, I can see you. I know every single thing that you're thinking, and I know what's inside your heart, and I can peer right in. So now, keeping that in mind, let's have a chat. 
you know, you're sort of like, oh, I'm exposed. So if, um, if that is the way that this letter starts, that is the context and the frame. And I love that. I think that's a very intelligent and clever way for, the, for this letter to come to the church. The letter is framed with the idea that, okay, we're going to talk now. But let's see, before we talk, let me remind you who I am. Let's turn actually for a second to Hebrews, um, Hebrews 4, verse 12. If you turn there. It says this, the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges, listen to this, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Nothing is hidden. Everything is laid bare and uncovered to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's kind of intimidating a little bit. So as we come back, that, that verse is, I think, the, the tie-in and what we're recognizing as we start this letter, and it says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So I, I thought of that, and I want us to be thinking of how we would feel if, are we doing anything? This God is gonna, about to see and peer into our hearts. And what might he find? So let's let his word do what it needs to do. So, verse 13, let's look at what the message is. Starts like this. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So this city in Pergamum, this was the capital city of Asia. And in this city, the Antipas was the first, Antipas, or however you say his name, he was the first martyr. And so the, the story goes is that he was taken out to the center of the town and basically boiled, um, roasted in a, in a boiling pot. And so what he's saying here is, I, I see you. He says, I know. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And even though the conditions for this church were so extreme that even their uh, leader or one uh, who testified for Christ among them, even though he was boiled, I mean, if I was taken to the center of Oxford and boiled for being a Christian, I mean, how many of you would be anxious to show up next Sunday? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I don't know if they would be or not. But the, God is saying to this church, I get it. I feel like this is encouraging because he's saying, I get the struggle where you are. I know it. I see you are living in a place where Satan has his throne. I mean, that's pretty intense. Some of your Bibles might say where Satan's seat is. In other words, he is the ruling authority. So this city where you live, I mean, what are we, the blueberry capital of Canada, the world? We're the world. We're the blueberry capital of the whole entire world. Um, you know, that's not a terrible place to live. I think it's okay. But would you want to pull into town? Welcome to where Pergamum, the place where Satan rules. This is the devil's place. Welcome to our town. You know, that's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit much, I think. I think that's pretty overwhelming. But here in this place, 
That is, that is what the letter says. He said, I see where you live and I know your hearts. Everything in your life is exposed to me and I know it's not easy for you. I know that when people were tested for being Christians, you stood strong. When people mocked you and thought that being a Christian was a joke, you kept my name. I think that's really encouraging to us and to know that this is a place where they lived, where the enemy was deceiving people. Well, it made me wonder what on earth was going on there. Wouldn't you wonder like what, what exactly is happening in a place that would be called the place where Satan lives, you know, the place where he's in control. So I looked it up. I found something actually pretty interesting. I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. They worshiped there the Greek god, bear with me, but Asclepius, I think that's how you say it. Um, this is the god, uh, and the Greek gods, who was the god, the savior, and the god of healing, most known as the god of healing. So in this place, the people in Pergamum, their God who saved, their God who healed, was a Greek mythological God. And in that place of deception, that's what people were worshiping around them. In this place was a place of emperor worship, where people bowed to Caesar, Lord Caesar. So I began to see, okay, and actually as I studied that, the interesting enough, the symbol for the Greek God was a staff with a snake around it, the God of healing. And that's still a symbol in pharmacology and medicine today. And that's where it comes from, the Greek God of healing. I didn't know that. So in this place, in Pergamum, this is the culture where they lived. A, a people that had heard the good news of Jesus Christ, a people who actually heard it from Paul, and we know what Paul went through. I mean, he lived the real deal on the road, you know, blind and can see. And he had a real encounter with God. And he came to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these people heard it. And they believed it. And they believed it amongst a culture that believed in other gods, other healers, other saviors, a culture that was completely deceived. You might know how that feels. And yet, he says, I see you. And his first word is encouragement. His first word is, I see you, and I see that you've remained faithful. And then we put the signal light on and we take a rough turn. Nevertheless, that's a, that's a rough turn. You're like, oh, I just liked if it stopped there. That was good there. We did good. Thanks, amen, we're done. But no, there's a nevertheless. I have a little problem. And so let's read what that problem is and see what that might mean for us here today. It says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. And then likewise, you have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So if we boil that down, he's saying, some of you are following the teaching of Balaam, and some are following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Neither one of these are okay. So maybe let's take a minute and let's dive down into what those are so we can see if there's anything in there for us. So the first is, is Balaam. Anybody remember anything about Balaam? What is a good story, Balaam? What do you think of when you think of Balaam? The talking donkey. 
So back in Numbers chapter 25 is a story, or somewhere about there, the story of Balaam. And so this is a story when Israel, God's chosen people, just kind of bring everyone up to speed, God's chosen people had been uh, winning wars, they were wandering the wilderness, now they were camped across from Jericho on the Jordan in the plains of Moab, and they were ready to kind of, they were set and perched, ready to go in and take the promised land. They were close, and they had been winning, they'd been following, and all of a sudden Balak, a king, he started to get a little worried. They're going to snuff me out next. So what did he do? He calls up. I mean, this is, you know, not exactly how it happened, but, you know, in our way of understanding, he calls up the local guy who puts curses on people. Hey, can you come down and, and I, I'll give you a little money. I need you to do a little something for me. I want you to come and lay a curse on God's people. So the guy says, all right, I guess I could. So he phones up God. Hey, God, let's talk. I want to put a curse on your people. But God says, no, you're not putting a curse on my people. So unfortunately, Balaam wasn't able to put the curse on God's people, and he went home. But Balak said, oh, no, that's not good enough. Send more money. Let's put more incentive for him. Maybe we can convince him to curse God's people. Like, I'm, I really need him to do this. Whatever money he needs, go back, make it happen. So he went again. And what does Balaam do? He does what we sometimes do. He knew God said no, but now there was a lot in it. So he said, okay, I'll pray about it. <laughs> yep. So he's going to pray again. Maybe this time, you know, because it suits me, God will say yes. So anyway, he prays about it. And on and on, you can read the story. Balaam could not curse God's people. And as I chewed on that and read that story for understanding what this revelation letter had for us this week, I just... I just had to stick there. We're just going to go for just a minute on a quick rabbit trail. I was just so overwhelmed as I read that this week, that here they were, God's people, and they could not be cursed by the enemy. They were under, I see like a bubble, that's how it looks for me, a bubble of his protection. And I thought, God, is that only historical? Like, is that, is that for us? And as I chewed on that, God, God reminded me, Jody, this isn't historical. You think to this in your own life. And so I begin to think of a time, and I've shared it before about the, the, the challenges we had when Brady was little. And he had, um, he had the, like all the respiratory problems and really couldn't breathe a lot of trips to the hospital. But I want to tell you this one, because this is my testimony and it's truth. That very first night, he was one year old, it was his birthday, and it was my first night as a young mother, early 20s, laying in a hospital room with my sick child beside me. That is a horrible, vulnerable feeling. And I remember as clear, and this is truth, it is truth, I remember as clear as anything laying on that cot beside his metal cage that he was in back then, and, and he was laying, and I, I started to go to sleep. And as I laid down beside him, I literally felt like I could see black darkness coming into the room, coming, coming closer, closer. Like, I don't know if I could see it with my eyes, but it was so strong that I could perceive it. And now I'm not talking I was any crazy, deep, super spiritual, like I, you know, nothing like that. I was just a normal person like you. I was in a tough situation, and I literally felt the darkness come close, like I could see it. And it was like coming right on top of me. And no superhero prayer warrior was I, but I said to the Lord, 
God, help me, because I knew Jesus, and I knew that he was for me. And I can tell you, it was like a, a vacuum cleaner stuck in the room. It just slurped it all right out, and the darkness left that room. And I say for 10 years, we struggled. We struggled with his health, but I never once felt that darkness again ever come near me. Now, why did God not heal in that instant? Why, why, why? I don't know why, and I don't have all the answers to that. But I have my testimony, and it is this, that God put a hedge of protection around me to answer my prayer. And he reminded me of that this week. And that is true, and that is the God we serve. And he is awesome and big. And sometimes we think that he is in some equal power fight with the darkness and the light. And, and that is not the case. He alone is the one true God. And everything else is a God with a small g. He's the only healer. He's the only truth, the way and the light. And that is who he is. And Karen gave me a fantastic book this week. Woo! <laughs> breathe, Jody, breathe. I laugh at Mark up here, but it happens. <laughs> um, Karen gave me a fantastic book this week, and it was a testimony of a guy who gave his life to Satan. And I will tell you, you should read it. It's incredible. But one thing stood out to me as I read this, first, this story this week, and I was thinking about it. You know, he would testify, and I've heard this before, that when he would be, he, he would do rituals and blood sacrifices and whatnot, and he would go out to do Satan's bidding. He would literally worship Satan and go out as he felt led. And he would say that if he would go to a church, he couldn't go in when they worship because it was too bright. And he would go by houses and whatever. And he speaks basically from the reality of when he was serving Satan, there was people that he could not touch. There was like a bubble around them. There was too much brightness or light in that place. And I was just amazed. I was amazed to read his story and amazed. And I believe that that is for someone here today. I mean, that is the truth about who we serve. That is the God that we know. We don't understand why did he do this? And like in my own testimony, why did he not? All I know is this. I, I was led to pray more. I was led to pray longer and deeper. Brady had experiences with God that he might not have had. Marty was led to pray longer. I don't know why it didn't happen, but I know that when I prayed, God came and protected me. And I know that this story in Numbers reminds us that what God has protected and covered, people cannot fight against. The devil has no power in our lives to penetrate what God protects. So let's go back to Balaam. Balaam, Jody, come on. Come on, come on. Balaam, he couldn't curse God's people, but what did he do? He could do something, and that's what he did. And it's really important we catch it because it's where, where it's gonna speak to us here today. So he set a trap for them. He set a trap for them to turn away from God because God would not turn away from them. Let me say that again. He set a trap to entice them, to deceive them. This is the place where the deceiver reigns. His plan is to kill and steal and destroy. And he came to deceive them inch by inch that they would remove, remove themselves from the obedience to God. Sorry. <coughs> what happens when you get worked up? So Balaam set a trap. What he did, 
He's told them, I know what you can do. I can't curse them, but you can do this. You can convince them to walk away from their God. But don't do it all of a sudden. Don't do it all at once in a really obvious way. Start with the Midianite women. Convince them that they should take them as their wives. And they did. And before long, they took them as their wives. They were taking part in the sacrifices to other gods. Inch by inch, you know the story. Don't tell me you don't see that story today. Inch by inch, little by little, until they were off in a place where they didn't want to be. And there was an incident that they call the incident of poor or how, whatever you say it. And what happened there was they were destroyed. And so what about that? That's the devil's game. And so look at the Nicolaitans. What's their story? That's what Balaam did for the Israelites. But the Nicolaitans, they were the New Testament church. Nicholas was actually the, one of the first deacons where you read in Acts that they took a bunch of guys who were full of the spirit and, and gave them jobs. One of them was Nicholas. But he too followed deceptive teaching. So another thing, at the time where they lived, at the time that this church in Pergamum existed, there was a philosophy called Gnosticism. And what they believed essentially, in one part as it applies to this story, is that everything matter is evil. So that means our bodies are evil. So that little bit crept into the church that say your bodies don't matter, they're sinful, only your spirit is good and can receive salvation. So because of that worldly teaching, the deception came into the church and they followed that teaching and before long the men were out having sex with the temple prostitutes, committing sexual immorality. So it boils down to this. That's what God is saying is that, hey church in Pergamum, I see and know you. I see the good. You know me. You have become my follower, and that's good. And you have stayed strong even when it's hard, and that's great. But listen, you are listening to teachers that teach something other than what I'm teaching. I'm saying zig, and you're saying zig. They're saying zag, zig, zag, right? And that's not okay. And so I had to think about that. Okay, God, so I don't think anyone's believing in Nicolaitans or Balaamites today. I don't see any here today. So what does this mean for us? Where is the revelation for us? And first of all, God, why? Why would they do this? Like, I began to think back to Eve. Like, Eve fell for the serpent's deception, didn't she? Eve began, began okay, and, and yet she took the, the bite and went for the deception. Why did she do that? I mean, Eve got to walk with God in the garden. So why would she do that? And the Israelites, look at them. I mean, they were God's chosen people. He fed them with there's fire and all that stuff to lead them by day and by night and manna and quail. Like, if God did all those miracles for us, like, really, come on, like, why would they so quickly turn? And then I thought of the, the New Testament church following the Nicolaitans. Why would those men go do that to have, you know, to, to be with temple prostitutes and believe that truth? Why? And I looked at it and I prayed and I was looking at it even last night. God, what is the truth in this for us? Why? And I began to see it. And this is what God showed me. Go back to Eve. Why? Because Satan told her, the deceiver came in and said, you will be like God. You will be able to know all things. 
And when she had to make the choice, she said, this choice works better for me. Look at it again with the Israelites. They had to make a choice. They knew God. Let's, let's, they were God's people. They came down to heaven to make a choice. Well, it seems right to them that maybe it would be okay to be with the temple with these Midianite women. Maybe it's okay to chill with them at the well for a bit. Maybe I could invite them back to my camp. Seems okay. And when they had to make that choice, but God said clearly no with Midianites to be with his people. Serve only me. God said it. But what was it? Well, it probably worked better for them. It worked better for them. And I looked to the Nicolaitans and, and the teaching that they were following. Why would they do that? These were the leaders in the church, and I hear the same words. It works better for me. Works better for me. And do you know what that is? It's a revelation that the teaching that the deceiver uses is to teach us to obey self, to do what's good for me, to obey what gratifies me, what works for Jody, what's going to give me more wisdom, more power, make me feel good, make me better, stronger, richer, more powerful, whatever, I can easily be deceived. Uh, that, that's temptation for me to go out and, and do what works for me. And so I begin to think about that a little bit more. Okay, God, would we do that? Would, would our people, would we here, would I, would we maybe take the philosophies and things of the world and, and the things that are against what God says. And would we do that because it makes, makes me happier? I'm, I want to be happy. And I begin to think about one thing that Jesus taught. He taught that all of the Old Testament, all the law, all the rules, all the prophets, everything summed up in two things. And you know what they are. Love God and love others. And we make a whole bunch of rules and sin and this is sin and you're sinning and that's sinning. And what Jesus taught, love God and love others. And I began to think about everything that we call sin and we want to label sin and judge and come against and all that. And I said, what if we, listen, this is good. What if we, God's church, his people, what if we said, when we're trying to wonder if we are being deceived, if the thinking that is coming into our head is right or wrong, what if we said these two questions? Does it honor my God? Does it honor my brother or sister? And if that's the test that we could pass, then it's probably okay. But if what that does is take from God and his glory or take from my brother or sister, then for me, that is sin that builds up myself, and that doesn't honor my God. And I begin to just soak in this truth on how powerful that is the very essence of the gospel that we believe in, that Jesus Christ came, that he came to live in us, and there is one God, and I look at this place of, the, of uh, Pergamum, and I think of our world today. There is every mindset and philosophy and thought processes and everything, and it's confusing, and sometimes we don't even know what's right or wrong, and, and sometimes we use this, God's word, as a weapon, and that is horrible that we do that. We try to fight with it and do all kinds of things, but this is God's word, and it points us to Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ in us is the transforming power in our lives that pulls us from darkness into light, and when that transformation happens, even if Pastor Jody was boiled uptown, I know that you can remain strong. 
I know that the power of God is in us. It's the power to love. The Holy Spirit, one of my favorite verses is Romans 5, 5. And it says, the love of God was poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And that church is what we need to be able to deny self, to love God and to love others. It really comes down to this. Have you experienced Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Do you believe in the one true and living God? And if you do, you're much like the church in Pergamum. You're not confused that there is one God. You live in a place where every other thing is probably said to be true, but you believe in the one true God that we sang about today. But the warning is this. Don't be deceived by false teaching. Church, if we're gonna struggle with what's right and wrong, it's not that hard. Does it honor my God? Does it honor my brother or sister? If we could be a church here today that would submit ourselves unto God and allow him to rule our lives with that kind of love, do you think it would be hard to fill our churches? Do you think 10% of Oxford would be in church on a Sunday? But when the world sees something else, it is not the compelling gospel that we are meant to live. It isn't. And that is, it's so hard sometimes for us to hear, but it is not the power of God of a transformed life, of a testimony. What does the Bible say? That we will overcome by the blood of the lamb, by Jesus Christ and by the word of our testimony. You can take a lot of things from me, but you can't take my testimony. It is the truth. And so today, as we look at our own lives and as we pause for a moment to think about God's word to this church, He's calling them to repent. Would you allow him to search your own heart? We make it super, super complicated, but it's really, really simple. Either he is God, Jehovah God is the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ, his son, is the savior and Messiah, or he's not, and it's a lie. Decide today who you will serve. Decide for today who you will believe in, and if you believe and you have received salvation and you have been transformed from the darkness to the light, church, let's live as people of the light. Let's live as people transformed and filled by love. And you know, it's interesting enough because as the Church of the Nazarene, our distinct theo theological position kind of comes down to the belief that even though we have received salvation, there is still that fight inside my heart who rules and reigns in here. And that is, a, that is a period in my life I can testify where I struggle between what works for Jody and what honors God and honors my brother. And that's the fight that we live as Christians until we come to the place. And I believe that some are coming to that place and have already been there, but others approaching that place today where God who peers by the pierces by the power of his word into your heart, he's saying, you are still struggling to live for self. And as long as you do, as long as you want to raise you up, to promote you, to increase you, as long as you do that, you are easily picked off and pulled by the enemy out from under my protection because you raise you up. And we are called as Christians to die to self. And it is a daily fight, amen? It is a daily dying to self. I'll tell you, this was not the best week for me. Sonia knows, Marty knows. 
I, he, I had to ask him to give him, give me two hours because I'm really, I need it. I need to just have two hours before I chew someone's head off. It is a daily dying to self, but I can testify to this. God, by his Holy Spirit, he has filled me, cleansed my heart, and it is my desire. I am not perfect, 100%. Let that message be clear. I am not perfect, but it is my desire to die to self and to answer that question that yes, I will follow the line for my life, what honors God and what honors my brother or sister. Let's pray.